Hey. So we've been, <clears throat> we've been walking through this series of conversations. We've been, uh, the, the first night is the conversation about uh, there's a God that rules your life. There is a tournament of champions per se in your brain and something wins. And in our white noise culture, we can tend to just blot out any more significant questions. And so we asked one that kind of permeated the whole night, which is, why are you here? Like, what are you doing? Why are you breathing? You're not some cosmic accident. You were made on purpose, by purpose, for a purpose. Have you discovered what that purpose is? And any self-identified purpose is meaningless. The purpose that we find is always indwelt by a creator. The one who made something gets to define its purpose. And, and night two, we talked about last night that God's made it clear what our purpose is. It is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And yet so many of our lives, when we look at it from 30,000 feet, it seems like we exist to serve ourselves. We exist to push our own agenda. We exist to promote certain things in our life, to be cool, to be popular, to be cute, to, uh, to, to see how many people we can sleep with. Like we have these internal agendas that we think are going to one day satisfy us and one day bring us purpose and meaning. And we talked about the bankruptcy of that worldview, that there's no one who has ever accomplished the rat race set before you with physical things or with material possessions or with physical conquests that has ever been completely satisfied because you aren't a body. You are a soul. You have a body. Why would we ever expect material things and tangible people and social media and likes and sex to ever satisfy the immaterial soul, which is who you are? Why do we feel empty? Why, why is it that the proportion of people who commit suicide and struggle with deep health and, or, or uh, mental health problems and anxiety, and I know so many of us in here struggle with that, but you know it's proportionally greater for the rich and the famous? Everything that we think, everything that we breathe in, everything that we intake in our culture says, if you just get more money, if you just get more famous, if you just have more sex, if you just get more known, if you just get more, you'll be satisfied. And there's a secret that the rich and famous have that you haven't realized yet because maybe you haven't gotten there. I think the reason that they are, they are even in a worse shape than a lot of us are mentally is because they've been to the pinnacle of their craft and they still feel empty. This is the secret that Paul talks about in the New Testament, his secret of contentment, of knowing who he is, of understanding that the true desire of life is that you would be fully known and fully loved. No one wants to be fully known and not loved. And no one wants to be fully loved without being known. Because when you, if you're fully loved without being known, you think, well, you don't know the real me. And if you're fully known without being loved, you go, you do know the real me and you don't want any part of it. The beauty of the gospel is that the God who created you both fully knows and fully loves you. And it's the only relationship you'll ever experience where both of those things are true. I had 10 years of marriage with my wife. We shared everything together. Like She knew everything about me and still... We experience, and you'll experience even in your own parental relationships. You've, divorce has plagued so many of you in here. And so many of us walk into marriage and we put the burden on the other person. You're going to bring me value. You're going to make me happy. You're going to make me satisfied. And we have once again imposed our immaterial needs on a material person. And we're so frustrated that we say things like, we fell out of love. It just didn't work out. They, they didn't make me happy. Well, of course they didn't make you happy. That was never their job. Of course they don't satisfy you. 
You were created with a chasm inside of you that only God can fill. And the more that you throw things at it, the more broken you're going to feel because you're so confused at why it's not working. And guys, I'm telling you this stuff, and, and I keep saying you, but this is my story. My story is get more, have more, become more popular, accomplish more things. And the more I did it, the more broken I felt. And the insanity of the cycle that we participate in, insanity's definition is to repeat the same activity over and over again, expecting different results. This is our story in this room. We reach some pinnacle. If I can only get 1,000 followers, if I only get 2,000 followers, if I only get into this school, the problem is then you're gonna get that many followers and you're gonna make a new goal. And then you're gonna hit that goal. And guess what? You're still gonna feel empty. For only Christ can satisfy and so tonight, I, uh, the, the, the whole weekend long, my commitments to you is, is I'm going to talk to you like adults. I'm going to say offensive things because I want you to make an informed adult decision. Like, y'all can drive around in cars. Y'all can, like, go into the army, and you, you, you think I'm going to sugarcoat crap for you? That's trash. And I respect you too much to do that. And so tonight, what I'm going to do is I'm going to present to you the gospel Okay, the gospel is kind of a fancy word that's used in churches a lot, but the gospel literally is translated from this Greek word euangelion, which means the good news. Okay, thus far in this weekend, if you've been tracking, we're probably at a position of bad news. God made you with purpose, on purpose, for a purpose, and we, from the get-go, from conception, have failed. We have each turned to our own way, as if he says, and the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. We have all rejected, we've all rebelled against him, we've all spit in the face of the God of the universe, and God is perfect in all of his characteristics. And is God loving? Dang straight. Is God merciful? Absolutely. But God is also perfectly just. God leaves no crime unpunished. It's part of his character. We always say God can do anything, but let me tell you something, and I'm trying to be heretical. That's not true. God can't do anything. One of the key things he can't do is practice insanity. God can't make a married bachelor. God can't make a three-sided parallelogram. God can't, it, it, insane things. God can't make a burrito so hot that he can't take a bite of it. He can't make a boulder so big that he can't lift it. That's to participate in insanity, and our God is a God of order, not of chaos. Something else that God can't do is he can't neglect any part of his perfect character. He never lets go any part of his character for a moment in the entire history of time, not once. So you might think, well, God's really taking this to the extreme. Why can't God just let it go? He literally can't. Because justice must be served. This is what's so beautiful for those of us who turn and repent and, and go back to God and surrender our life to him. We don't have a God who is surreptitious or cavalier or emotionally charged that goes, not today. I'm having a hard one. It's been a difficult day for me. I've got so many things going on. God is always necessarily all of his characteristics at once, which means when a man or a woman turns from their sin and turns to Jesus, he is always a loving father. He cannot be anything else. That's why when we preach the gospel, and I can tell you, if you repent of your sins and turn to Jesus, you will become a son or daughter of God. I don't have to go, I think probably today, what is today? Sunday, he loves Sundays. 
I can say it because his character is always consistent. The problem with the truth that his character is always consistent is that he is always perfectly just, which means the rebellion and the treason that we've committed with every sin we've ever had, and even in the status of our condition as humans, if you were born of mankind, you were born into sin, and every day you've just made it worse. And that's, this is the verdict. This is the diagnostic test from the doctor. We all have a bad case. So the question is, if we're talking about the gospel, the good news tonight, it actually starts with pretty bad news. There is a God who sees all and knows all. He is in with and through all. He is omniscient, knowing all, omnipresent, everywhere at once. And he's omnipotent. He is forever and always powerful and infinitely consistent in his character. So what would a God who is perfectly just at all times do if we, people who have committed cosmic treason against him, deserving of death, can God simply say, I'm going to let this one go? He can not. There is no letting it go. When we talk about God forgiving the sinner, the forgiveness is absolutely the end result of it, but someone's got to be punished. Someone has to take the penalty for the sin of our rebellion against our maker. Someone has to undergo the punishment and the horrific adjudication that you and I have earned for our rebellion. God can't say, I'm going to look the other direction. Why? Because he's omniscient. He knows everything. He can't not know everything you've ever thought, done, and said. He can't not know that. He knows it perfectly. And he can't remit it and simply go, I'm going to choose to let this one go, or I'm not going to punish that one. He is a good judge. So the question comes in, then what's the good news? If we're all guilty of sin, and we all have a bad case, and the punishment for our case is death, eternal death, separation from him, then what could possibly be good news? If you start to think about it in your brain, and you go, how, how could God possibly fix this scenario? He can't just let it go. We're all guilty. The wages of sin is death. We're all screwed. And something happens 2,000 years ago. The gospel presents itself. What is the gospel? It is the way that God built the plan he gave to save a sinner like me. And now that I've kind of set that up, what I'm gonna do for the rest of our time, which is not very long, is we're gonna walk through something called Romans Road. I want, I, I want you to see it in the text because I want you to make an informed decision. I don't want you to think this is like the gospel according to Chris. I want you to see it in the text exactly what's required. So if your question to me walking out of this chapel is, Chris, what must I do to be saved? In Acts chapter two, Jesus dies. He's buried in the ground. He comes back to life and he starts showing himself to people all over Jerusalem, right? Now, if you're gonna commit a hoax and you're gonna try to fool people, you, first of all, would have other people go say that the dead guy's alive again. And secondly, you would go to some foreign nation so that no one could validate your story. What does Jesus do? He shows up in the flesh. He eats dinner with people with the nail marks in his hands and the spear mark in his side. He talks to people face to face. And then he does so in the very place where his crucifixion took place. He wasn't trying to hide himself. You can find the craziest New Testament critics and they will still say something occurred that changed the whole pattern of history. Today we celebrate January 19th, right? Is it today the 19th, 17th? 
No one knows. We're on God's time here at Hume. Um, but it's the year 2023. When we say the year 2023, do you realize that we count our whole calendar system based on the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's been 2,023 years since all of human history was split in half by what? Jesus Christ. You have to have an answer. None of us can walk out of our lives and not have an answer for the most important message that's ever been committed in humankind. Your watch screams out. Your absolutely counter-Christian iPhone built by a company who's not exactly worshiping the Savior still reads 2023, the year of our Lord, 2023, which means 2023 years ago, something nuts happened. Something bananas took place. And we got to give an account in our life for what it meant for us. And for some of you, it might mean nothing. You might even realize you're going to meet God face to face, and, but you like your odds. You think that you've been a pretty good person. You've tried pretty hard. You might have heard me say that from, from your birth, you were sinful, that any sin is deplorable to God and he cannot be around it. It must be punished. And any sin is treason and treason must be punished not with temporary death, but with eternal death. Why eternal death for something as simple as sin? Well, there's a lot of reasons. First of all, God's justice is perfect. Secondly, like you and I know, the more authority and perfection someone has, the more egregious it is to commit a crime against them. Okay? How many of you have siblings that you've ever hit before? All of us, right? If, unless you're an only child, in which case you hit someone, right? Like, when my son, if my son hits my daughter, he's going to get in trouble, right? He's going to get grounded. He might get something taken away from him. He might experience some form of corporal punishment. But he is going to pay for what he has done. But that's what it's going to be. The stakes aren't super high. Now, imagine my son hits my wife. I, I realize she's not here anymore, but if he hit my wife, there'd be a whole new, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. Y'all hit your brother, and it's like, son, you hit your mom, and it's like, everyone's like, please run for your life, right? <laughs> and like, the, you can hear a pin drop in rooms like that. But still, the punishment would probably stay somewhere within the house. Imagine you walk up and you punch a cop in the face. Different? Different right? Punishment's different. The crime is different. There's actually a word for that, right? That goes beyond you hit your sister. There's, there's, there's a, it's a punishable offense. If you try to hit the president of the United States, it's not going to go well for you, right? It's going to be really bad. And as the authority increases and as the perception of the value of the person continues to increase, so does the punishment for the crime. Now imagine punching the God of the universe who is perfect in everything he's ever thought, done, and said, who has made all things and who breathed life into you. And you're using the very life he gave you to spit in his face. Could you imagine there being a different level of punishment? Absolutely. And so when we look at that, we want to ask the question, then what must I do to be saved? Jesus comes, he dies, he's buried, he raises again from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven. And then for a long time, people are freaking out. Because people in Jerusalem are like, Jesus was here. And then we like, we all voted to kill him. Probably shouldn't have done that, because it turns out he came back from the dead. And anytime someone comes back from the dead, like probably what they said was true. And so people gather every day outside of the temple, and they're waiting to find out what are we supposed to do for what we have done. And in Acts chapter 2, at the southern steps of the temple in Jerusalem, Peter stands up and the people go, what are we to do? And Peter says, you guys killed Jesus. You killed the God of the universe. 
And they say, we recognize that. We recognize our sin. We recognize our brokenness. We recognize that he is God. And then they ask the most important question a human being can ask. What must I do to be saved? How do I fix this? What is my response now that I've recognized I've done these things? And for some of us sitting here, this weekend has been you recognizing that a response is required. You might have come this weekend thinking you and God were tight, or you and God were, were at best, or at least at worst, you guys were indifferent to one another. But last night we ended with one thought. You are either a child of God or you are his enemy. And as you've recognized you being an enemy and you've seen both his perfect love and his perfect justice on full display, you might be asking as you sit here tonight as a 15, 16, 17, 18 year old, because you're an adult and you make adult decisions, you've been given information and you go, okay, what must I do to be saved? I don't want to be an enemy of God. I want to be a child of God. I want to be in his kingdom. I want to spend forever with him, not apart from him. I recognize what, the life, what life apart from him is like, and I didn't even realize that every time I breathe in or I laugh or I enjoy friendship, it's God's invitation to me to know him more. For every good and perfect gift comes down to us from the Father of lights. And let's say that that's a corporate question. So let's say that we walk out of this room and you go, Chris, you kept setting up the gospel, but you didn't tell us what it was. And you asked me one-on-one in the middle of the crazy weather out there. You catch me, right? Right before broom hockey starts or whatever it is tonight. And you go, Chris, you didn't finish. What must I do to be saved? I'm going to answer that question by reading to you five verses, and then I'm going to ask you to give a response to it. The answer to your question begins with Romans chapter 1, and it says this. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. If you want to flip there in the scriptures, you can. If not, I'm going to show it to you up here on the screen so that we can make sure that we're kosher with one another. Right Here's what it says. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay? For his invisible attributes, being God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. That's, a, that's like a fancy, Paul, Paul was a brilliant dude, so he writes kind of brilliantly. Let me summarize it for you. God, if you asked him, has he made himself obvious, he would tell you that he has put his fingerprints all over humankind, all over nature, and all over the universe. Therefore, anyone who says, I just don't think that there's actually a God, he says, I've made it too plain. And anyone, it continues in this section, anyone who believes that there is no God doesn't do so because of a lack of evidence. They do so because of their hardness of heart. They, rege- they have traded in the truth of God for a lie and have all the- together their hearts have been darkened. So you're not gonna get away on the day you meet God face to face with saying, well, if you would have made it obvious, because God's response is gonna be, I believe I did. And I think, again, in our apologetic seminar this morning, we talked about how obvious God has made it. So the, the way that I can demonstrate this for us is that we all, at some core level, understand what this is trying to say. If you and I were walking in the woods and we didn't know Hume Lake existed, and you asked the question, Chris, what must I do to be saved? And we stumble upon this chapel, and then we walk into the chapel, and I ask you, what do you think made this chapel? And you're like, I don't know, you mean like a man or a woman or like a, an architect or designer or like when, who built it at what time? Like, what do you mean what made this chapel? And I was like, no, you're talking about a lot of who. I asked you, what do you think made this chapel? Because I've got a theory. 
all of the design and all the complexity of this chapel, I've got an explanation that doesn't require a who. What I think happened is there was a blustery storm one day, and then beavers started like biting down trees, and then the storm started kicking up the wood, and then there was like sap between the wooden slats. That's where we see the, how the wall is kind of like fit together like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and then there's like an earthquake, and when the yeah, 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 and then like when the earthquake happened, oh, you should have seen it. There, there, there was like this swelling up, and see how this stage is kind of built like this? That's because the ground underneath is a swollen up, and and then and then beavers again, very busy. They started laying out this stuff. Why is it black? Well, because um, they're the bees, bees, there was bees, right? Like, and then you're like, what about this stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So see this screen, see what seems illuminated. It's not actually illuminated. That's all in your brain. What it really is, is like there, there has to be a point in there where you would go, Chris, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. No, not once during your long, rambling, incoherent response did you say anything that could be considered a rational thought. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul, right? Like, that would be a lot of your answers to me. But you guys, here's what you don't understand. If you're willing to look at this room and say this could not have happened on accident, but you're, in, you're not willing to look in the mirror and understand the same thing, you have created one of the greatest logical fallacies in all of thought. How you are built makes this chapel look elementary. Right now, the millions of cones and rods and the way that your brain is perceiving the information that you're taking in, right now you're intaking visual information through your, through your eyes, but it's being translated through your brain while the noises that I'm making that we call language, that's all it is. I'm just making noises right now. You call them words? It's not. It's just sounds, but those sounds have come to mean something in your brain, and that meaning can invoke emotion, and it can bring memories, like the last time you went to a theme park. Remember that? In your brain, you just pulled out the last time you went to a theme park, and yet if I cut open your brain, I would not be able to find any slides in your brain of a theme park, because you were able to, in your cerebellum, rip apart the last time you smelled certain things or saw certain things. You're able to pull that to attention, and the number of electrical connections in your brain is greater than the number of electrical connections, connections in the county of Los Angeles. So if you're not willing to look at the county of Los Angeles and think that its electrical connections are all a mistake, then you can't look at yourself consider yourself a mistake. And this is where our world is chaotic. Perfectly constructed, amazing, architected, designed, beautiful fingerprints of God are being told you are some kind of cosmic accident. It's the stupidest thing. You, you, you've, it's called the taxicab fallacy. When you go, complicated things are created, Information is always created. Design always points to a designer, except when you talk about people. That's called the taxi cab fallacy. You get out of the taxi cab when it's convenient for you, and you get back in when it's not. A guy named Francis Collins was responsible with decoding the human genome. When he finishes decoding the human genome, he wins the Nobel Prize in science, and then he writes a book called The Language of God. He submits his life fully to Jesus, and he's now a Christian author. And his response was simple. If we're willing to look at information and consider it from a mind, then we must look at who we are as people and we must have come from a mind, period. You won't get away with thinking that there is no God when you meet him face to face. So the, the gospel starts with there is a God and he has revealed himself to us through nature, through his word, and through one another. So, 
The gospel starts with this. There is a God. But it gets worse before it gets better. Romans chapter 3 says this. For all, there's no parentheticals, there's no caveats there, there's, there's, yeah, you don't see any parentheses or parenthetical phrases, there's no caveat. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay? That means each and every one of us has a bad case against us. We all deserve hell. Everyone you've ever met is deserving of hell. Eternity separated from God because we've rebelled against him and committed treason, and God in his perfect justice, incapable of going against his character, owes each and every one of us hell forever. Was hell made for people? No. It was made for Satan and the, peop- and the ones who follow Satan. And then in our rebellion, we started following demons and Satan into hell. But we can't accuse God of sending people where they don't want to go. As C.S. Lewis says, the ultimate view of God's mercy is that he gives everyone at the end of their life their exact wish. You want to be near God? There's a place where you'll be with him forever where the streets are paved with gold and the only light that comes is from the lamb who was slain. And the beauty of the knowledge of being in the presence of God will overwhelm you anew every day for the rest of time. It's just for a hundred trillion years and then some. And it's not gonna get boring or old. Do you wanna know why? Because the only reason anything in your life is boring and old is because you're sinful. If you were perfect, you would be as God when he considers things. Why does God always make daisies the same? You think God ever wakes up and he's like, freaking daisies, man. Yellow center, white things, stupid. Why does God make daisies the same every time? Because God has an infant appetite. We have grown old. We're bored. But God is not. Which means we watch kids all the time. Like, you ever had your parents like swing you when you were walking? Like, one, two, three, go. You know what I mean? Like, if not, we'll, we'll have a little group outside afterwards and... I want to take you back to childhood a little bit and you can do it. Let me ask you a question. Who ends the one, two, three, go game? The kid or the adults? The adults always end it. The kids always says what? More. Again, again. Friend, listen to this. The God of the universe has an infant appetite for the grace that he's extending to you. He has not grown old like us. So whenever you talk to God or you repent of sins or you ask for forgiveness... Sometimes we superimpose the way we think on God. And so we think that God sits there going, no, you've done it too many times. But in reality, our God has an infant appetite even for forgiveness. And he picks us back up and he says, again, again, more. You can do it. I love you. And my mercies for you are new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of our Lord. So... If we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that means we, Romans 6.23, here's the implications of that. The wages, the earnings of the rebellion is death, okay? When the Bible says death, it doesn't mean that you're, at some point, the five life functions are gonna cease in your body. It means an eternal separated death from God, hell. The wages, what we've earned from our rebellion is hell. And then here comes this conjunction, this most crucial conjunction, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, here's what you must think to yourself. You said that God's character is always consistent. So how could God, all of a sudden, we've got a bad case, we've all rebelled against him, we all deserve hell, and then all of a sudden he gives us some free gift. That's not fair. That's not just. That would seem like the judge is simply saying, not a big deal, let me give you a gift in place of it, but you've missed the whole crux of the gospel. 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 through 19 is our theme verse for this week. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. My favorite verse in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And what it does is it illuminates how God can remain consistent in his character and also extend to you the free gift of eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says this. Jesus became sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's God's plan. As we sit on trial, our court case is set. The verdict is in Guilty, the punishment for our crime is hell. And as God, the Father, brings down the gavel to maintain his perfect justice, a man stands up in the back. The Father recognizes his own son, Jesus. And Jesus says, he is guilty of the crime for sure. Absolutely, she has done exactly what you have said. And the punishment for her crime is eternal separation. It's death, a horrific traitor's death. I recognize that. And Jesus looks at his Father and he says, What if you punished them the way that, what if you punished me the way that you were supposed to punish them? You see, in doing that, you would maintain your justice because someone would have paid the penalty. But then those enemies can become sons and daughters of you because I will have taken their penalty. I will have taken their sin. And in doing so, I will hand them my righteousness. I just want to make a trade. If the wages of sin is death, then the wages of perfection is life. So Jesus comes and lives a perfect life, which means at the end of his life, he's owed life, eternal life. But what happened to him? He was killed. So if you kill someone who was owed eternal life, he's got credit on his account. He's going... The wages of perfection is life, and I was perfect, and yet the wages of your sin is death. So Jesus, when he jumps back out of the grave, the grave spits him out and says, you don't belong here. You're the perfect one. On, his, on the cross, he nailed our sins to himself, and he paid the penalty through his death. He became sin who knew no sin that we could become his righteousness. So he embodied, per se, your sins on that cross. And when you think of the cross of Christ, don't look at it as something this religious figure used to do. Think of it as a man who took the place that you should have. That should have been you. God's justice requires that your sin be punished like that. And Jesus pins himself to a tree in the Father's will in order to absorb the wrath of God that was meant for the enemies of God, Jesus becomes me the enemy that I could become him, the son of God. He becomes the murderer so that me, a murderer, can become a son. He becomes the sin and is punished for it so that I can become the righteousness. You see, when I get to heaven and I meet God face to face and he says, why should I let you in? I'm not even gonna start talking. I'm gonna go, and I'm gonna step back. And because I've, I've surrendered my life to Jesus, in that moment, Jesus is gonna stand in front of me and go, he's mine. Go ahead. His righteousness 
is my only defense. My one defense. Oh God, that's what it means. My defense when I meet God face to face is not going to be, well, I try to be a good person because it will never check out. Well, I'm not as bad as Hitler because that doesn't work. My defense is going to be, it's his righteousness on my behalf. Now, you don't let me into your kingdom. I'm stained. I'm broken. I don't deserve to be around you. But for whatever reason, because of the love of this guy, this Jesus, this most beautiful Savior, he pinned himself to a tree and took the punishment that I deserve. And for whatever reason, he's going to let me have his righteousness. So I'm getting into the kingdom on his voucher, not my own. That's how when we look at Romans Road, this crazy moment happens where we go, well, how can you uphold your justice? It's because he poured out his wrath that I deserved on Jesus. And then the perfection and the life that Jesus was owed, he transferred to me. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, God has demonstrated his love for you. You see, some people, when they talk about love for people, they don't do anything about it. Oh, I love everyone. Well, show me how. Well, I feel good about them. That's not, <laughs> love does something. And it said, God demonstrated, he put into action, he turned into a verb his love for us. God demonstrated his love for us by doing this. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That means some of you right now, you sit as an enemy of God, but God has extended the ultimate love olive branch to you because when he died on the cross for your sins, he made a way for you to become his son. He made a way for you to become his daughter. So even in our rebellion, our loving father has made a way for us to be with him forever. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the call of the gospel isn't, so if you guys will clean up your act for God's sakes, and if you'll do the right thing and stop your swearing and stop your, then you'll finally be ready to come to the cross of Christ. Jesus says this, come to me all who are weak and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. We don't get perfect and come to him. It would never work. We come to him and he declares us righteous. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So the last question is, then how do I receive that? What does it mean to actually respond to that truth? Romans 10 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, so it could be said that that response to what God's done for us is twofold. One is to say in your heart and in your life, Jesus, I believe that when you died on that cross 2,000 years ago, that you paid the price for my sin and that your resurrection proved that you have the power to make dead things live and I trust in that as my future. I know that I'm sinful. I know I rebelled against you. I acknowledge it and I need you. And the second part of that is, and because you've done this, you're the king of my life. I give you my everything. I'm still gonna mess up. I'm still gonna blow it. I'm still gonna biff life. I'm still gonna do wrong things. I'm still gonna every once in a while act like I used to act before I knew you. This is what Christians do. And I don't need to tell you this. You've all spent enough time around Christians to know they are not perfect. But it is to say, God, I, I want to make you the king of my life and I want what you say to be ultimate. 
So if God says something and you feel a different way, if God says, this is not the relationship I want you in, but you go, but I really like him, it doesn't matter, then that means God's not your God. If God is your God, he's not a cosmic consultant that you just check in with before you make your own heart decision. Why? Because your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately beyond taming, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Instead, you say, from here on out, you are the king of my life. You tell me what, you tell me what to do. You tell me where to go. My life is yours. That's a response to being saved from hell. That's a response from being admitted through love and the suffering of a cross into heaven. God doesn't love you if you, God doesn't love you if you start acting really nice, if you start, no, we start changing the way that we live because God's overwhelming grace for us necessitates it. And then the Holy Spirit, God gives himself, and it it literally says that God then indwells in the hearts of the believer becomes for us a guide of sorts. It keeps us from sin and pulls us back to him, reminds us who we are and directs us in our life. So what's the response? There is a God. We have sin. That sin has cost us everything. Therefore, we have no righteousness of our own. But Jesus took the penalty for my sin, and then he offered me the penalty for his perfection, which is life. For whatever reason, Jesus was willing to make a trade that cost him everything. Humiliation. He was stripped naked. He was beaten. He was placed on a cross. He had a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. He was mocked by the very people that he breathed life into, and he went through all of that because of his love for you is so beyond what you'll ever be able to understand. He was beaten for our iniquities. He was struck for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was his chastisement, and by his wounds, we are healed. So this is the response. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say a prayer. In that prayer, if you sit here and you go, I get it. You might say, I get it, and I want nothing to do with Jesus. At least now you have an informed adult decision about why you don't want any part of the whole Jesus conversation. The problem with coming to Hume Lake, though, is you can't walk around for the rest of your life and say, I don't get it, or I didn't know. You can't meet God face to face and go, I was unaware. But you have the right and you have the privilege of rejecting this message. For others of us, we go, I get it, and I quit. I'm done being my own boss. I'm done living my own life. I feel the weight of sin on me, and I feel the calling and beckoning of a loving father, and I just want to be part of it. I don't even, I don't know all the ramifications. I don't have all my questions answered. But anyone who is willing to go to a cross for me, even while I've rebelled against them, like, I just want to give my life to that. And so I surrender. I recognize my sin. I receive your gift of your suffering and your resurrection on my behalf. And I want to live for you for the rest of my life. And I want you to make a decision. And what what I'm going to do is, as I pray at the end of the prayer, I'm going to ask, if you've made that decision for the first time, I'm going to ask you to stand up. I'm going to count to three, and then I'm going to ask you to stand up. And like, I just, just trust me. Like, if, if you're too nervous to stand in front of a room of predominantly Christians while a Christian talks to you, while you're surrounded by Christians, while Christian music is playing in the background, your Christian youth pastors, like, if you can't stand here 
dang, man, you're not going to stand down the hill. That's the power of public faith declaration. That's why baptism is so important for us as believers. It's a public declaration of what's happened inside. There's nothing supernatural about you standing up, for sure. <laughs> it's not like, I used to be an enemy of God and I'm saved. Well, all I had to do was knock, lock my knees and I'm good. That's not nothing about it. But I think it is a good step to say, <laughs> I'm gonna stand up, I'm gonna leave my old life behind. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And you're making a public declaration that what God has done in your heart throughout these past years, and the prodding of your youth pastor, the movement of your counselors, the conversations with your small group leaders, and maybe it has all resonated in this moment where you're ready to receive the gospel and to surrender your life to Jesus. And you stand up and you declare to everyone from here on out, He's my dad. He's my father. He's not just some concept that's in the margins of my life. He's not just some idea that the Christian, he's my God, and I will know him now as father, and he will know me as daughter, and he will know me as son. That's why it's a public declaration. The second part is, is it helps us as your youth pastors to be able to have a follow-up conversation, and it's going to be a simple one, but as small group leaders and counselors, too, it just says, tell me why you stood because something you need to know about life in Christ, it's not a private affair. Life in Christ is very personal. It's a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not private. It is to be done corporately. We struggle together. We weep together. We mourn together. We rejoice together. We celebrate together. We struggle together. We wrestle. We do the things of humankind with one another. That's how God built us. So how do we declare our faith? together also. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. If you'd bow your heads with me. Jesus, for some of us, we were born 15, 16, 17, 18 years ago, and you have been pursuing us since the moment we took our first breath. But God, if we're honest, we've rebelled against you. We've turned to our own ways we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We've created false gods. We have chased false truths. We have made ourselves the center of our own universe. God, we have sinned against you, our perfect and holy God. And tonight, for the first time, we just want to repent of our sins. We want to turn away from that. We want to acknowledge how we have sinned against you. We want to apologize for having done so. And God, like Romans says, we want to, first of all, say, God, we believe that when you died on that cross 2,000 years ago that you paid the penalty for my sin, and I don't get why you did, and I guess the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair, but for whatever reason you did, motivated by your love for me, I, re I accept it. I receive what you've done on the cross in my place. I receive your sacrifice as the payment for my sins, and I look forward because of your resurrection to the day where you will resurrect me also as your son, resurrect me also as your daughter, where I will live forever with you in perfect communion with you forever in your perfect paradise. And in the meantime, because of what you've done for me, God, I want to surrender my life to you. You are the king and I am not. You are the God of my life and I am not. And God, I know I'm still going to mess up. I'm still going to fall short. But I know that now as a son or daughter of you, that those are things that are no longer counted against me because your son has already paid for sins that I will even commit in the future. 
But God, I, I, set, I orient my life around what you've called me to do, and I trust that you will make me into something beautiful. You will make me more like you every day. So God, for the first time, I acknowledge these two truths, that you are the Lord and Savior of my life. You paid the penalty for my sin. You rose again from the dead, and you've promised me new life in you. And that new life, the second part of God, I acknowledge that from here on out, you're the king and I am not. Thank you for the gift of the gospel that makes all of this possible. You could have looked at our sin and our rebellion. You could have crumpled up the world like a wad of trash and thrown it out and said this was a mistake. But instead, you became flesh. You lived a perfect life. You died the death that I deserved. And you were motivated by your love for us. And I will spend the rest of eternity thanking you for that. So your name we pray. Amen. If for the first time tonight you said that prayer, surrendered your life, received what he's done for you on the cross, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to stand up. One, two, three, stand up. You guys can have a seat. You guys can have a seat. You'll notice that the people around you without prompting started clapping for you. I told you, it's kind of a corporate thing that we do. In, in, in scripture, we just realized that our family got a little bit bigger, and so it would make sense that we would celebrate things like that. Now, this is not the end of your trial, friend. This is not the end. This is, you just put a big target on yourself. I can tell you from personal experience, following Jesus does not mean that your life is going to be pain-free but it does mean that all of the troubles in your life are governed by a father who loves you and knows you and awaits the coming kingdom where you will know him perfectly. And sometimes that's the only peace we have in our life. In scripture, the only appropriate response to being saved and being healed is to worship. It is to thank God for the movement that he has done because without him, none of this would be possible. He is the founder and finisher of our faith. And so we want to respond as family members who just received new family members and as people who have given their life to Christ for the first time, we respond by saying, thank you, Jesus, that you came and you made a way for us to return to you, that sinners can become children. I don't know why you did it, and I don't have a really great way of repaying you, but for whatever whatever reason in scripture, you call us to sing in response. And so dang it, we're going to sing. So the band's going to lead us in worship. Would you stand to your feet?